Welcome to The Wall of Soundtrack, a show where we discuss the music and soundtracks behind the very best TV shows and motion pictures. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Michael Mann's crime drama thriller, Manhunter. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nadia Foucher Massage. Nadia is a massage therapist in the D.C. metro area with over 13 years of experience helping clients reduce stress and chronic pain. Nadia provides a variety of massages ranging from deep tissue, Swedish, and prenatal, and other services including aroma, reflexology, and stone therapy. Nadia also provides her services to private businesses and companies to help with stress management for their most important assets, their employees. I've also been a client of Nadia's for over 10 years, and I can honestly say she's helped relieve the chronic pain and stress in my neck, upper body, and lower back. As a result, she's helped reduce my stress levels and improve my overall mental health. When I go to Nadia, I come out of the massage feeling like a new person. To schedule an appointment, visit www.nadiafmassage.com or call 301-651-3877. That's 301-651-3877. Manhunter is a crime drama film that was released in 1986 and was directed by Michael Mann. The film is based off of Thomas Harris's novel, Red Dragon. The story surrounds former FBI agent Will Graham on his quest to catch the deranged serial killer, Francis Dollarhide. Manhunter was both a critical success but commercial failure. It was the third film for director Michael Mann, who included his usual elements of rich character-driven drama, musical backdrops, photography, and strong color tones that we would see in his later films such as Miami Vice, Last of the Mohicans, Heat, the Insider, and Collateral. Manhunter has an excellent cast of actors and actresses, including the following. William Peterson as Will Graham. Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide. Dennis Farina as Jack Crawford. Kim Grice as Will's wife, Molly Graham. Brian Cox as Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Joan Allen as Reba McLean, And Stephen Lang as Freddie Loons. My returning guest for this discussion is Cy Shackleford. Cy is a writer for the entertainment commentary and review website, Actionagogo. You can follow his articles on the website, www.actionagogo.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Shack underscore house 83. I had a great discussion with Cy. This film, uh, Manhunter, is definitely one of my favorite Michael Mann films. Really enjoyed it, and I hope you do as well. Here's my discussion with Cy on the music and soundtrack behind Michael Mann's crime drama film, Manhunter. Sai, nice to have you back. Good to be back. Good to be back. I've been waiting to do this one for a long time. Yeah, yeah, Manhunter, man. This. Yes, the original, the original Hannibal Lecter movie. Well, even though he's a really just a very small supporting character, in retrospect, in hindsight, it's the first of the, uh, it's the first of the Hannibal Lecter novels to be brought to film. Yeah, and I honestly think it's better than. The Red Dragon, in my opinion. I think so, too, even though I saw Red Dragon first when it came out in the theaters, largely because of the whole Anthony Hopkins connection to it as part of the, um, as part of the, um, what's it called? As part of the Hannibal Lecter series, but afterwards, afterwards I went and saw Manhunter, and even though it's clearly very dated, 
and, and downplays many elements that man Dra- that Red Dragon played up. I think it's a better directed film. Yeah, and it's Michael Mann. I mean, you know, he's he's pretty solid director. I mean, he's definitely one of my favorite directors. Yeah, he is a pretty solid director, and and we we've covered him before too with Ali. And it's an interesting side note for that too as well. I uh, I went to this like this old school, old school vintage place over in Laurel called Lost in Time. It's a vintage toy store with a bunch of other cool stuff in it too, like a vinyl, uh, CDs, VHS, um, old school toys like GI Joe's, Twin Ninja Turtles. My point, my point is this in regards to Michael Mann. Every time I go in there in the vinyl section, the first thing I see is a soundtrack for his first film, Thief, from 1981. Yeah, and, and this, you know, this soundtrack reminds me a lot of that film. There's a lot, a lot of like the cinematography reminds me of that film as well and we'll we'll get into that but um you know what is uh what's going on with action a go-go um what we are doing now we're mostly going to go into like that there's like an action panel in new york that we usually participate in like an action movie type of panel where we like discuss the state of the genre right a few of us go up there every year to participate in that so that's what we're doing right now okay and i saw you there was an article on there about uh rambo Oh yeah, um, I think it was either Derek or Zach that covered the the fifth upcoming Rambo film. Yeah, what do you think about that? I'm okay with Stallone rehashing old characters. I mean, I was skeptical about it when the fourth Rambo film came out back in 07 or or 08, I think it was. But when I saw it in the theater, I'm like, this is ultra violent. Like, this is what I'm talking about right here, Stallone. You go ahead, you still got it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was pretty intense. And even with him rehashing the Rocky characters for like a Rocky Balboa and the Creed films, I'm like, I'm okay with that because he can still make them look fresh for a new generation, but still a throwback for us old school fans. Yeah, I mean, uh, the violence in that film, like you said, I mean, there are guys getting their arms blown off. I mean, yeah, it was, it was it was bloody. It was bloody. Machetes, machine guns, all that was the most violent Rambo film I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so, uh, you know, did you do anything for Halloween? I mean, nothing major. I mean, I mean, the kids. It was a humid night on Halloween. It was, it was like almost a summer night, with how humid it was, and we knew it was going to thunderstorm too. But that didn't stop none of the kids from coming around the neighborhood and still wanting to get candy. And I, I participated in that up until the point where I ran out. Right. And I always buy like those two great big bags every year, but I run out within like what. Almost at an hour. Yeah, we. I didn't even hang around for it. Like, I, I we just ended up going out because, you know, I mean, we we didn't we didn't want to really uh, have to end up handing out candy and stuff. I enjoyed. I enjoyed. I mean, the kids. There's a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And I don't want to be the. I don't want to be the the grouch in the block. And plus, I like to see what costumes they got. And <laughs> I remember one year. Check this out. I don't think I told you this. One year, I had on a Jason mask, a Freddy Krueger glove on my right hand, and a, and a candy dish in my left hand, opening the door, handing out the candy to kids and whatnot, right? And one of the one of the parents, a mom, I think it was, yeah, it was a mother, what am I talking about? She, after I give her kid candy, she looks at me funny and asks really seriously, like, are you participating in Halloween? And I'm looking at her, and I remember flat out telling her, uh, "No, no, I'm an accountant. I wear this fucking thing as a fashion statement, lady." <laughs> Some people are just so oblivious, right? Dense, I mean, dense. 
Like yeah. it's almost like their density is like them being dense is intentional. Idiot. Mm-hmm. Idiot. <laughs> Idiot. Yes. <laughs> Man, um, you know, I I, th- I think this is a real fitting movie, right? Around uh, Halloween to to watch Manhunter. I mean, it, it is really because of the psychological aspect of it. If you want gore, on the other hand, Red Dragon is your best bet. I mean, that was more that was more macabre than Manhunter was. Yeah. But uh, you know, this film's still pretty bloody, though. I mean, it is pretty bloody. I mean, I mean, it doesn't even need to be as bloody as re- as his remake, as Red Dragon was. But that's what makes this one work, I think. The whole psychological aspect of it, especially when you see how Will Graham is getting into people's heads. Yeah, and Michael Mann. I mean, he reuses a lot of the actors that he's used in previous films. Or one example, Tom Newton. Uh, he was in Heat. And he played a character Kel- called Kelso. Oh yeah, the one in the wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, it's like a computer. He's like a computer hacker. A computer hacker. Yeah, the ones like you just got to know how to grab it. See, I know how to grab it. Yeah, <laughs> he was so good at that little small part that he had in that movie. But he is in this movie. It was like he just pl- he went full method actor on them. I heard. I mean, a lot of the actors, William Peterson, uh, Dennis Farina, they didn't even know what he looked like for a long time because he went to the. He purposely isolated himself up until the scene where he, where they both had to participate in the same scene together just to bring that kind of mood into it. Yeah, like, yeah. And the, you know what is another small detail is, you know, he has the the uh, cleft lip. Yeah. I think it just it works. Like, it just works perfectly with the character. It works with the character, yeah. I mean, it's more pronounced with Tom Noonan than it was with Ray Fiennes in a Red Dragon. Right. But, yeah, and, and Noonan... Noonan's dollar hide. I also thought that they, they kind of downplayed a lot of his psychological instabilities. I thought. Yeah. I mean, they didn't go into his background like they did with a uh, with in red like they did in Red Dragon. Yeah. Um. You know this this movie, man. It's like I just see so many of the Michael Mann like characteristics, like film characteristics or like themes in it. Uh, I mean, this soundtrack has a lot of. You know, like we were we were talking about earlier, synthesizers and keyboards, and you see a lot of that in his first film, uh, Thief. Thief. Yes, you do. Yeah, and I mean, we saw a lot of it in Miami Vice, right? Yeah, um, yeah, Miami Vice, which was created two years prior to Manhunter. Yeah, even the synth, they had like a synth like instrumental as the opening as part of the opening credits, in addition to all the music that they got licensed for to use in the in the series itself. Yeah, and man, that's one of man's gifts right there, knowing how to use music in his films. Yeah, and I think it set in a really good example for other films that you see from like, uh, you know, other filmmakers that are out there. Um, I mean, one example like I, I could think of is the the film Black Mass with uh, Johnny Depp. Oh yeah, Scott Cooper who directed that. Yes, indeed. yeah, he had some really good music in there. The, the one, the one that really had me on my phone when I went to go see Black Mass in the theater back in 2015 was the part with the montage where they show a Whitey Bulger taking over Boston with the backdrop of Slave by the Rolling Stones in the background. And then when I heard the riff just come on, I was like, what song is this? I'm like, oh, this 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 instrumental is tough as fuck. Yeah. And like, and you taking a page out of Scorsese's book using a Rolling Stones song, but that's good though. Yeah. And it got me and it actually got me to buy the the, the Rolling Stones album that song was on, a Tattoo You. Okay. One song, you know, I I was I was thinking about when I heard when I watched the film, 
that stood out to me that I kind of did the same thing. I went to my phone and was kind of looking up what it was, was a song by Joe Walsh called Turn to Stone. Mm-hmm. And it's that, uh, that scene where the cop uh, pulls, pulls uh, Whitey Bulger over and is kind of talking shit to them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If, I, remember, I remember that scene where he's like, are you threatening me with Bulger? If, if, if I was going to kill you, the last thing I would do is warn you in advance, you dumb fuck. <laughs> You're just waiting for the beat down. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like we don't we don't touch cops, basically. <laughs> and then it like it like will tra- it transitions to that Joe Walsh song. And it's got that mean, like real heavy bass. Oh, yeah. Uh, sound to it. And you're just like, you know, something's you know, going some, down. Something's about to go down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not right now, but later on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's jump into the soundtrack, man. All right. Um, First song here is by the Reds, called uh, "Leeds House." Yeah, it was used in the in the right in the opening credits too. Like when we see the opening credits, it's like seen from the point of view of like a Super Eight camera, like going all through the the, the house of the Leeds family, right? Yeah, it's really creepy. It's really creepy. Yeah, and the synth they just the synthesizers they just create like a moody. A moody, very dark atmosphere to make the, the the listener and even the viewer very uneasy. Like, what the fuck is going on? And then when it clo- when it slowly closes up on a, a a sleeping married couple in the bedroom, and the wife is slowly getting up with the flashlight on her, then it transitions to the to a to a sunlight and a beach scene. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is that night vision goggles scene in Silence of the Lambs. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's that's probably where they got the idea from. Where Jonathan Demi got the idea from Michael yeah. Mann. Where he's just like following, uh, following, following uh, Jody Jody Foster, Clarice Starling. Yeah, 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 and he's just like following her and like like putting his hand like behind her and she like because she can't see anything. She can't see anything it's totally at all. Dark. Yeah. yeah. So I, that's that's so weird. I just thought about that. Yeah, but, that's, uh, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good catch, actually. Yeah. But um, yeah, this song um. You know, like like we said, man tends to use like some of these, uh, you know, progressive, uh, like you know, uh, electronic artists that you really haven't like heard before. Like Tangerine Dream was another one that yeah, from, uh, from Thief, yeah, yeah. He yeah. like he like kind of like, but he he brings them in into into the film like. And you're like, wow, like it's it's like we were talking about. We we had to go to our phones, but it's like you discover all these new great artists through a lot of the the soundtrack work that was done in his his films. Exactly, yeah. And with this one right here, it was also it's used several scenes later when Will Graham, after he decides to take up the investigation into the um into the murder families, he goes to investigate the Leeds house after it's a crime scene with the blood still fresh in the walls and the carpet and everything. Yeah. And it's like it creates a it, it creates a very atmospheric mood a very dark mood as well too, especially as Will is recording everything he thinks happened in the house, describing in visceral detail what happened to the family and how the husband still tried to fight back against the killer, even with his throat cut and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, geez. And how eerily calm Will is about this, too. Yeah, and I think it really shows, like, the obsession of his character. Like, he's obsessive. Like, he's... And he focuses in on these really small details, like almost, I would say, obsessive compulsive to an extent. He is a psycho. He is a head case, definitely. I mean, he's at this point, he's been retired from the FBI for several years already and, and is very reluctant to go back. But it's it's one thing that he's really good at is getting these killers by psychologically identifying with them, even the ones who scare him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And with and uh, another and about the reds though about the reds yeah i never heard of them either until i saw manhunter they're from philly they're a rock band from philly they didn't have that much success but michael mann knew about them because they played in clubs in los angeles 
and heard one of their one of their one of their sets, and decided to have them in Manhunter as well as uh, the Band of the Hand film and episodes of Miami Vice as well too. Awesome, awesome, yeah. And like, just like I was saying, Miami Vice introduced us to a lot of other musicians we didn't even know about, like actors too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we go to the next song, again by the Reds, uh, Lecter Cell. And this scene is just—it's uh, really uh, amazing how it's shot. Um, very unusual camera angles in this scene, and the, and the and the use of white, the color white—it's almost monochromatic. Yeah, yeah, and the, like the cell bars, like where he's kind of shooting mm-hmm. over the shoulder of over Graham's shoulder, and you see uh, Lecter there, and um, it really shows like the division between the two characters, how. Graham, you know, he may be like you—you you were saying, kind of a head case. Yeah. But um, he's not a sociopath, right? He's not like Lecter, who's like. No, he's on the good side. He—he he has, he knows, he understands the difference between right and wrong, and cares about it. Yeah, exactly. Lecter, Lecter does know the difference. He just doesn't care, and that just makes him a—that makes him a sociopath or a psychopath, if you want to call it that. And they don't go. And Brian Cox, who we later see later on in like the the Bourne films. Uh, and the X-Men films, and currently that one film, that one uh, series on HBO, I can't remember the name of it, though. Where he's like the head of a patriarch of a family who are all backstabbing each other. Yeah, I can't remember. But in this one, the point is, this one, he, he plays Hannibal Lecter, but Lecter's a very minor character in the film. But he has an impact on Will Graham because he was the one, he was actually helping Graham trying to capture some killer but it turned out the killer was Lecter himself. He tried to kill Graham, but Graham got the drop on him. But it was traumatic enough to make him quit. So he's very reluctant to go back to Lecter in this scene in order to, in, for consultation to figure out how to stop the Birmingham and, and Atlanta killer. Yeah, and we don't see that in this film. We don't see what actually happened to Graham in this film. You, we do see it in the Red Dragon, though, where I believe he's stabbed by... Um, Anthony Hopkins stabs him. Yeah. Anthony Hopkins Lecter stabs... Uh, uh, Ed Norton's Will Graham. And then Graham, I guess, shoots him, right? Or something, injures him. Stabs him, and then causes Lecter to bounce back a little bit, but then he pulls a gun out in time and shoots him enough to incapacitate him. Yeah. Yeah, so th- this this music that they use, um, you know... Go ahead, I'm sorry. The re- the Reds, they're using kind of an odd per- percussion kind of arrangement there. It sounds almost like a xylophone, like... Yeah, and a very it's very tense, and it gets very... It gets to a very droning urgent noise when will wants to really get out of there as Lecter's taunting him yeah he definitely feels uncomfortable yeah the whole scene is like he he needs help from the guy who nearly killed him but it's like i don't really don't want to be here this dude scares me and and Lecter knows until he downplays he tells him the reason you caught me will it's because we're both alike you want the scent smell yourself (laughs) yeah i mean i think Brian Cox is just such an incredibly underrated actor. I mean, he's fun to watch. He's a fan favorite. Yeah, and he notices how he's a Scot. He's from Scotland. He knows how Scottish actors, when they got to do American accents, they usually do Southern accents. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good at that. Kelly McDonald in a No No Country for Old Men, and uh, who else? No, I was going to say Lar Frazier in Breaking Bad, but nah, she didn't have a she didn't have a Southern accent at all. Yeah. The, it's crazy like and we were just talking about the wire in a couple episodes ago and you know dom um what's it uh dominic west dominic west yeah and he's english uh idris elba's english and aiden gillen he's irish 
Yeah, yeah. And he was in like a couple of Chris uh, Nolan's movies, right? I think he was in one of the Batman movies. The last one. He was in The Dark Knight Rises in the opening scene. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this 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 scene, like like I said, the the camera angles we see more of them are kind of odd. Like, there's one kind of in the corner of of uh, Lecter's cell in the top corner too. Yeah, yeah. It was like I was. Just, it's it's strange, but I it it did I think uh, kind of give it a distinct look as well. It so. does. It does. As was the use of color, like we said, white in there, and and it was white in the Leeds house too. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I think he used he went with a director of photography. I think his name is Dante Spinotti. I think his name is, uh-huh. and he was used in a, like you know he used him in a couple of his other films like Last of the Mohicans, uh, Heat, like Public Enemies. Uh, Heat, I can definitely see the the um, the comparisons between the cinematography there and uh, here in Red Dragon, especially in the scenes where where it wasn't in the bedroom scenes where you see like a blue backdrop. Yeah, yeah. And you see like these like odd like in Lecter's cell there's like purple kind of like purple illuminations from the sink and mm-hmm. he uses color like he gets a little lot more uh, kind of uh, experimental with it. But um, yeah, and then we go to our next song by the band called uh, Shriek Back. Yeah. It's called Evaporation. And so this is like another kind of progressive, uh, progressive uh, artist, right? Like um, kind of like indie uh was it punk yeah they're like a post-punk post-punk band yeah and this band kind of reminds me a lot of um you remember remember in some of his films he, he uses i think her name's lisa gerard she's mm-hmm. like a singer um she she had some some songs uh did soundtrack work for gladiator and um so she was in a band called um dead dead can dance dead can dance yeah and um so like this band really reminds me a lot of like that that band that she was in because man used Lisa Gerard and a bunch of his other films as well. I've seen her name, yeah. I just didn't didn't make the association till now. Yeah, no, no, it's it's kind of out of left field, but <laughs> um, you know, I kind of listen to weird music, but uh, I think we both do. <laughs> definitely, this band remind me of them because they're they're very versatile, um, and you know, in this scene, uh, we definitely. Uh, see a lot of those synths again. Um, now this is the one where he's. This is the scene where he's in the backyard, right? Yeah, the Jacoby house this time. The second family that was killed. Yeah, yeah. He goes in the backyard to look around to figure out something to give him some kind of a clue, and he climbs a tree in the backyard, and he figures out that the killer was was sitting there all day watching the family, and passing the time by making by cutting some of the branches with a. With the with, with the cutting tool, yeah, and carving the red dragon symbol in there as well too, yeah, creepy, and, <laughs> creepy, yeah, and, and, and the way Graham is like, that's why you were, that's why you watched them all goddamn day, didn't you, you son of a bitch? That's why you need houses with big backyards. Yeah, definitely. Again, I feel like illuminates that uh, obsessive kind of part of his character, right? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, it does, it does, and I think it just makes it so that. And the lyrics make it so that he's really identifying with Dollar Hyde's mindset more and more. I mean, the, what, do the, what do the lyrics say? Those dark eyes conceal their life within them. Buried secrets the flesh won't keep. Yeah. Buried secrets. And it's, it feels like we learn more and more about Graham's character, right, throughout the film. Throughout the film, and, yeah. And he and how he has secrets as well, right? Yeah, he has secrets too. I mean, we learn why he quit the FBI and why he didn't 
why he's so reticent to be around Lecter when he has a when he has a talk with his son in the supermarket. Yeah. Yep. Um, then so they do another song, uh, and it's called Colacanth. Yeah. And then this is an instrumental track, right? It's just an instrumental. Yeah. It's a. Uh, I looked at the word Colacanth. What it means yesterday? I think it's a. Uh, something to do with like a sea life. I think. Like okay. A mollusk. I think it is. I could be wrong, but. Yes, yeah, using the scene where uh, Dollar Hyde and his civilian identity, as as like a a Gateway Labs film technician, he meets a blind employee there named Reba, played by Joan Allen. He befriends her. Of course, she can't see him, so that works in his favor. But that's what he likes about her. She doesn't. She can't see him, so she can't judge him. But she know. But she can hear him. She understands him, and she can. And she knows about his facial disfigurement. Of course, her being blind, she doesn't care either. Right. But in this scene, um, he starts a befriender, starts to like her, and wants to show her, wants to show her something—a sedated tiger that's about to get his tooth capped. And he has her, basically, has her every sense that she still has remaining. She uses that to take in the tiger. It's its smell, how it feels, its heartbeat. You can see tears come out of her eyes too as she's feeling the heartbeat too. It's like she's, it's like she's getting off on this kind of sensory. The sensory experience and Dollar Hyde, he's watching her and watching her and he's like, he's getting off too. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of a creepy scene. I won't lie. Um, but does kind of capture the, the psychosis I feel like of Dollar Hyde. Um, I love like the music and how it's used because like it, they, he's using like either flutes or some sort of like woodwind yeah. um, instrument. And, um, it kind of captures that like uh, primal like vibe, you know, or it is, like, yeah. Even with the even with the beast being tamed, the tiger being tamed, it's like you know it's still a primal animal. And we know Dollar Hyde, based on the previous scenes that we've seen, especially with Freddie Lowndes, how primal he really is. Yeah, and it's almost like maybe I'm kind of going like uh, going a little too far with this, but it's like Joan Allen's character Reba's blind, and you know she can't see she can't see dollar hide. Right. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of, um, she's kind of under, right? Like when you think of it, like she can't, she can't see what his, uh, like his true flaws are. Right. No, she can't see his, his real murderous nature. She can't see that. But the same is kind of, uh, is, is true with the tiger, right? It's been, it's been put under. It's been put under. Yeah. 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 And, and I remember watching the scene and I was thinking, I was like in any minute, if this, Tiger wakes up, he could just like tear like Reba apart, right? Like, he could, yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going off not, and like, nah, you got, you want to, you got something good going on there. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, what I saw in relation to that was, um, he sees how gentle she is with the tiger and he figures to himself, if she's gentle with this kind of a beast, maybe she could tame me. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, like, like maybe, Maybe being in a relationship with her is like his way of getting to stop himself. Like he won't have to kill entire families no more to fulfill some narcissistic fantasy about being loved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you may be onto something as well, right? Like, um, so we go to our next song here. Um, I, this is actually, this is a tough one because I, I like the soundtrack so much. Mm -hmm. This has probably got to be in the top, my top two favorite songs in the soundtrack. Yeah. Like, uh, Prime, the, the prime movers strong as i am i just think it's it fits so well with this scene um because it, it's really illuminating dollar hides again his psychosis you know he's he has this vision 
of of what he thinks is going on, but um, it's not actually happening, right? It's no, just it's like not. this, like hallucination. Ah, hallucination. Hallucination. Ah, can't talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it just it's it, it's perfect. I mean, I mean, this scene. Well, he's not hallucinating. At least he's finally getting he's getting some at last. Yeah, and, and Lord knows he needs to get some instead of just trying to do crazy shit with dead dead female bodies. Yeah. And and this chick and the, and the thing of it is this woman who you can see who's pretty she wants you, yeah. And, and she made the first move. It's, it wasn't like how it was in Red Dragon where you had a uh, Emily, well, I forget her name. How she how she was just practically throwing herself at Ray Fiends. Yeah, like like fondling him and finally just going down on him right in the same scene. He looks uncomfortable as fuck. Yeah, it's like how you kind of know he was again a psycho. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but um. Yeah, this one, like the red, like the use of light in that window, like the door window, mm-hmm. where it's like kind of red. Um, it's kind of like, you know, symbolizing that violence that's about to happen because, you know, he does go and, and kill that guy. Yeah, and he and, and that was the scene before. What he's doing now, he's watching the next family he plans on killing. Yeah. Like he says he's doing some homework. I'm like, and the audience knows, but Reba doesn't know. That's the irony in the scene. I didn't pick up on that. That's like, I thought he was just like stalking her. No, no, not stalking her. Nah, the, 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 the projector, the film projector he was looking at was like the home videos of the next family he was going to kill. Wow. It's just like little details like that. Like something you miss, but, um, and then he, you know, you see him like rip the, the dashboard uh off the you know in the van in the van yeah it's like jesus strong as i am yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's another the title is very fitting as well it is Um, it is i was i was listening to an interview with tom noonan and um he was talking about michael mann and i think it was at like a comic-con event and um he was saying he's like Oh yeah, um, Michael Mann. That guy's like so intense, you know. He's like, he's like this guy would like fire whole departments, you know. Like, <laughs> and uh, he was talking about that scene where um, the van scene. He's like, he, he Michael Mann, like, like he overheard Michael Mann saying to like one of the producers. He's like, I wanted, I, I'm gonna turn around, and when I turn around, I want the whole art department to disappear. You know, really? Yeah. <laughs> he fired him like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was just like he's—he was like, this guy would just fire whole departments. He's like, we were trying to do this one dolly scene, mm-hmm. you know, um, at you know the, the sequence at the end of the movie where they're like they have that shootout. He's like, he's like the cameraman, the director of photography was trying to do this really complicated shot, like dolly shot, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't pull it off, and and Michael fired him, and then he was like. You know, so some other guy, he's like, who was trying to get ahead, uh, you know, tried to jump in there and do that shot. He's like, Michael fired him and it wasn't even his job. <laughs> How'd they finally get it done then? Did the man do it himself or? I guess. I don't know, but it was. <laughs> wow. I, I know man was that intense. That's some, that's some Steve Jobs shit. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very intense uh, filmmaker. And then, like he was laughing. About it. He's like, he doesn't need me anymore. He's like, so he doesn't care if I'm talking shit about him. <laughs> yeah. He hasn't called you in years for a film. So. Yeah, exactly. But. uh yeah, dude, uh, I love that song. Then we go to the next one by Michael Rubini, uh, Graham's theme. Well, that's my favorite. That's my favorite track in the whole film, and the favorite scene in the whole film too. And that's when he's looking at the the glass when it's raining. Yeah, and and all that part that was used right there. Yeah, after what's it called? After Lowndes is killed, and he's looking at the glass. His reflection just saying, "It's just you and me now, sport." Yeah. And the waitress comes in like, "What'd you say, sir? Oh, uh, coffee." 
yeah. quickly covers himself with that. But it's like the fact that you're talking, you think you're talking to Dollar Hyde, but you're looking at your own reflection. Again, the theme of duality that man likes to talk about in his work and like how the protagonist and the person he's chasing, they're not so different from one another. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that scene also reminds me of um, the diner scene in uh, Thief. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where, where um, De Niro and Pacino. Well, no, it's James Caan. Remember, it's James Caan. And, um, oh, and Thief. Okay. He's talking to the to his like girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Tuesday Weld. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of reminded me of that that shot like where he's kind of looking outside and it's windy in Chicago mm-hmm. and he sees the lights and stuff. So you see kind of like that similar cinematography. You see that in there. It is. It is similar. No doubt. No doubt. I love this track, though. When Michelle Rubini... The, and the second scene he uses, he uses. Oh, it's Michelle Rubini. Sorry, Michelle. I goofed yeah. that. Uh, sorry about that. Yeah, I was calling him Michael Rubini Idiot. for. A, I was calling him Michael Rubini Idiot. for a while too, until I saw in the Blu-ray, the collector's edition Blu-ray. They have a they have a bonus section in there for um, for the music that was used in the film, and they interview Rubini and they introduce him as Michelle Rubini. It's like okay, good to know. Good yeah. To know. Yeah, I've never been good at pronouncing names, so. <laughs> and the other scene where it's using is him and Dennis Farina when they're in the hotel room. And Farina, props to Michael Mann for casting Dennis Farina in this. I mean, Farina was an ex-cop from Chicago. And at this point, he'd been starring in a bunch of Michael Mann productions. He was in Miami Vice as a, as a mafia don. Yeah. Uh, here as, as Jack Crawford. And in Running Scared, I think, with, with Gregory Hines and Billy Crystal as a as a what's it called as a chicago police officer i think he was also in another show that michael mann either produced or he wrote i think it was called police story if you look on imdb uh i think he was in dennis farina was in that as well but he used a lot of like like you said actual you know bank robbers and his movies and actual cops as well yeah ex-cops ex-robbers people who knew the business pretty much yeah in this scene where um where Graham finally figures out how what Dollar Hyde's selection process is, and, and Graham's theme it just keeps getting louder and louder, more intense as Graham realizes how he's choosing the how he's choosing. He's like, "You've seen these films," and then he tells Crawford, "What's it called? Compare to, compare the films, the, the, the home movies of both families. You're going to say the same label they're produced by the same spot." And he's looking at himself in the in the reflection in the glass. And you hear the guitar solo in the song. And part of the song also sounds like a, has like elements of Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Yeah. You notice that as well? As I'm wearing a Pink Floyd shirt right now. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, I just noticed that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pink Floyd, man. One of my favorite bands. And when, he, and when Crawford, <laughs> Crawford realizes that Will is right, and Will is still just looking at his reflection, but he answers back, it matches, doesn't it? And Crawford's just looking at him with his mouth wide open. In like a mixture of like shock, shock, amazement, awe, and fear all at once. Like he's crazy, but he's good, and I'm glad he's on our team. Yeah, he's like, get the SWAT team ready. Yeah, yeah, I want to chop her on the roof in about three minutes. Yeah, <laughs> on the roof, not roof. <laughs> the roof, yeah, that that Chicago accent, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then we go to our we go to our next song. Oh man, this is the I- iconic song. Oh yeah, Iron Butterfly, Inagata de Vida. Which this scene is is so it just works perfectly. It does work perfectly. I mean, uh, Francis he's kidnapped. Uh, Reba brought her to his home, and she doesn't know where she's at. So he just blasts the music, starts the music on, and scares the hell out of her. And he's right next to her the whole time, and she don't know it. Now this like he so it actually wasn't the music wasn't actually 
dubbed over in the editing it was actually like he plays it in the movie i forgot about that he actually plays it in the film itself oh, oh. that's awesome like it makes oh. it even even better yeah it does actually okay i didn't know that yeah it's, it's crazy and then like that wallpaper man do you see that wallpaper inside that house it's like yeah. crazy <laughs> yeah yeah i mean th- th- this house looks a little bit more a little bit more like decorated and more together than the house that they use in red dragon which looked like it was about to fall down any minute yeah yeah, and that it was out in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, like, both both these houses were out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but um, you know, Iron Butterfly, um, they were actually a band that was, you know, they became pretty popular. And I didn't know this, but uh, Led Zeppelin actually opened up for Iron Butterfly. Really? Yeah, and then <laughs> probably three or four years later, when Led Zeppelin really hit it big, it was the other way around. It was actually Iron Butterfly opening up for Led Zeppelin. I've never heard that that happen before, where it goes the other way around like that. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It is. Yeah, I mean, we know Zeppelin got bigger, but I didn't think they would actually be, they would actually have bands who they open for, open for them now. It's like quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy when you think about it. It is. It is, man. And didn't you say like you were? We were talking about this. You said that the band was like drunk when they recorded this. That's that's what the story reportedly goes by. When they were recording this album, and, and this song, it went on for twenty minutes. Like they were just jamming the whole time. But the but the the slurred lyrics. They were trying to say Garden of Eden, but it came out in a God of Vida. Jeez. <laughs> oh, like what were y'all drinking to make it come out like that? That's crazy, man. That is absolutely crazy, but awesome at the same time. Yeah, it is. And and what we got out of it, I mean, uh, people have sampled this song, Barry's parts of this song before too, especially the famous guitar riff. Uh, the rapper Nas, he sampled it in two of the two different songs, actually, the Thief's theme and uh, Hip Hop is Dead. Okay. Yeah, Nas, Nas, you know, Nas would of course do that, right? Because he's epic and he he yeah. understands music. He's kind of giving, uh, he's giving credit or an ode to uh, maybe. Tipping his hat off to Iron Butterfly, which I think is pretty awesome. In some sense, yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, it's it's a it, it definitely works with this scene, which is just utterly chaotic. I mean, it's like, oh man, I mean, Dollar Hide was indestructible, man. It's like he takes these shots to the chest, you know. Yeah, the shots to the chest, and it's like, uh, I'm like, what? What? They just shot you a point blank range, and you act like you can't even feel it. And the scene where like Will Graham is just running to the window in slow motion, you yeah. can tell it's a body double. It ain't William Peterson. Yeah. But as soon as he gets it, he breaks through the window. Dollar High just cl- holds him with one hand, slashes face down, doesn't even blink. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's just the guy. Just is so strong. I mean, and, and Tom Newton is like what? He's, he's a big dude. Got to be like six five, six seven, or something like around there. I mean, he's a big dude. I remember the first time I saw him was in that movie, The Monster Squad, which came out a year after this when he was Frankenstein. Okay. I remember seeing him in uh, Last Action Hero. Oh, yeah, the Ripper. <laughs> the Ripper, yeah. Where he played the Ripper and he played himself, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. God, I mean, he could play basketball, right? He's so tall. He could play, like, forward for, for got, like, the Wizards or something. Got to. He got to. I mean, he probably played basketball back in the day. Yeah. Um, this scene is insane, man. Like, I mean, I think before we see Graham loading bullets into his his revolver and they're like, they're not even the regular bullets, right? They're like the the, the armor piercing, armor like, piercing, like take this motherfucker down type of bullets. Yeah, and um, you know he eventually ends up shooting, you know, Dollar Hide, but he has to shoot him like six six times. times. Yeah, like, like unload the whole gun. Yeah, and he's still, like to get him to go down. I'm like, like how strong is this dude? I mean, it, it was it was it was pretty crazy, man. <laughs> yeah, twelve gauge shotgun blast that would have worked on him. Just two of them would have worked. Yeah, and that like. The way they they shot that scene, I was I was um, 
watching something on YouTube. It was Robert Rodriguez interviewing Michael Mann and Mm -hmm. Mann was talking about how he shot that scene and how they sped up like the, 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 the shots where um, Graham is shooting dollar hide to make it kind of look like, you know, make it look kind of like weird, you know, like, like um, almost um, cut up, like really, like really kind of jaggedy, I guess. I did see that in there. Yeah. It's like the way it was edited. Yeah. It's like almost a cut and paste. Like what? It didn't look right. It looks like fractured almost. Yeah, fractured, yeah. like not consistent. It, it wasn't fluid. And like, and then Michael Mann was like, "We ran out of, um, we ran out of squibs actually, like in, um, like blood, for that for that uh, sequence." So when the cop gets like, I think he gets shot in the head or something, and yeah. pushed out like of the window, he's like, "Yeah, we had we just found some like you know we found some ham or something and jam and put it on the back of his head." I'm like, "Okay, y'all, you, Michael, man, you lucky this movie's a cult classic, so it's forgivable." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the fact that uh, people didn't like want to take him out after firing so many people on him. Yeah, I mean, what's what you expect? Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, this. I always kind of associate this song with uh, with with Manhunter. Me too, me too. That's that's the one it's the one place where it was iconically used. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 awesome. It's it's creepy, man. It's got that creepy organ in the back, you know. Yeah. Almost a Frankenstein kind of vibe to it, like good nod, good nod against this Noonan played Frankenstein next year and Monsters Monsters Monster Squad. Yeah. Yeah. So we go to the last song in the soundtrack by Red 7 called Heartbeat. Yeah, they were very short-lived San Francisco band. Uh, Mike Rutherford from Genesis, he produced them, so that helped him a little bit. But I think this song right here, Heartbeat, was their biggest. It was their biggest song, and it was on their 1985 self-titled debut album. And they lucky they lucky that Michael Mann happened to hear it because what's it called? He incorporated he incorporated this film into the final scene and in the ending credits, where it's loop, where the the hook is looped over and over again in the entire ending credits. Yeah, um, I think it, it definitely, I think it kind of, you see Graham's character, right? Helps distinguish, in a sense, that difference between Dollar Hyde and Graham, where Dollar Hyde's the sociopath, you know, and Graham actually cares, right, about human beings, and he's he's a protector, essentially. He's a protector, yeah, and that was established at the beginning of the film when him and his son were creating that beach fence for those turtle eggs. And he was telling them, well, all of them get through. All of them will get through, guaranteed. Dogs won't get through. Crabs will not get through. Every one of these turtle eggs is going to make it. And by the end of the film, they bookend the end of the film by going back to that one element of the film. When his wife asked him, how many of them made it? Most of them. Most of them made it. Yeah. It shows that Graham's a protector. He protects the vulnerable. It's his. It's kind of like his calling. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think it kind of touches back on the plot too as well, right? Like some of the, some of, some of these victims may like, or some of the, the families or particular people, like, I guess I would say Reba, she made it, but the other families unfortunately didn't. So and the ones he, the one he was going to go at and they, there's a deleted scene in the, in the director's cut of the film where after he kills dollar hide, Graham goes to the family that dollar hide was playing to kill. Oh, wow. He just goes and just looks at them. And just basically, he's damn near in tears, like thanking them they're alive, but they don't know why he's thanking them. Yeah, yeah, man, it's a great film. Um, definitely one of Michael Mann's best, most one of his most underrated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, and also if he if he wants to do something, he should create a Blu-ray copy 
a Blu-ray copy of the film that's consistent with what he wants as a director's cut because even in the collector's edition on the direct on the director's cut of the Blu-ray, the scenes that he cut out they're put back into the high definition version, but the scenes are added in standard definition format. So they don't look right. They don't look right. Nah, not with the not with the the majority of the film that's high def. Yeah, I think he's. I hope he does make one more movie, and I hope it's good because. Black Hat and uh, Public Enemies. Public Enemies was okay. I didn't think it was terrible, but um, I don't know what I, I don't think I could say the same for Black Hat. Would you, uh, say, would you say the last best film he had was Ali? Um, no, I, I, Ali was definitely um, definitely better than Public Enemies. And, oh yeah, and um, and Black Hat. I think he was trying to do a little was a little too aggressive with trying to do like a cyber plot, you know, mm-hmm. like a cyber kind of crime drama. I just think it's too difficult sometimes to do it and you lose the collateral. He did that. That was good. Yeah. Collateral was awesome. The insider. I bought that on Blu-ray a few, a month or two back. I had never seen that. That's an awesome movie. That's an awesome movie. That's what, that's what got him invited to the Oscars right there. Yeah. I feel like he should have won it for that. He should have won something for that. I mean, somebody in there should have won something. Yeah, I mean, Russell Crowe should have like at least won something for, mm-hmm. or, or Christopher Plummer for playing Mike Wallace. That oh, was an incredible performance. Oh, the scene where he just goes off after he realized they screwed him too? Yeah. He's like, you let your little incompetent hands touch my news program? <laughs> he he's curses, like yelling at the lawyer. Uh, and then he curses out Gina Gershon. Yeah, yeah. He's like, Mike? Mike? Try Mr. Wallace. Wallace. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are destroying one of the best news programs in the country. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's like, after Al- I didn't even expect him to do all that. I, th- I thought he just went that was going along with the program after he sold out Al Pacino's character. After yeah. he seen his shit get fucked, was like, uh-uh, I'm not having this. He's like, you guys cut the guts out of it. Mm-hmm. You cut the guts out of my statement. <laughs> That's your incompetent little fingers. <laughs> He's like... I've been doing this for, he's like, I've been doing this for 30 fucking years. years. <laughs> like, I want, I want to use parts of that speech at one point. Yeah, exactly. You let your incompetent little fingers touch my, <laughs> that's what you want to say. That's what I want to say to my boss at times when she asked me to write something for her and then she says, great job, but I made a few adjustments and just over, overwrites the whole damn thing. Idiot. I'm like, yeah, we just come on great job and you just write and you just replace it with your own. Idiot. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like Jesus Christ, lady! How the fuck did you survive infancy? <laughs> yeah, you can't fix stupid, right? <laughs> stupid is forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forever. <laughs> well, hey, man, this this was awesome. Um, I, I really enjoyed going over this soundtrack. Um, I'm always a huge Michael Mann, uh, you know, fan. Love his work. Love Miami Vice. Me too. Me too. I haven't even seen the whole damn series yet. I've been through like seasons one and two and part of three. Yeah. But I haven't gone all the way through it yet. I got to I got to do it one of these days on my days off or or a real vacation day. Yeah. We should do the movie. I think we should cover the soundtrack for the movie because the soundtrack's really good. I have never seen the movie at all, even when it came out. I was just skeptical. It's like, okay, Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell, and y'all, y'all, y'all are not Crockett and Tubbs to me. Yeah, it was kind of a modern take on the Miami Vice, but yeah, it wasn't bad. Um, there's some really cool, you know, music that they use and the soundtrack and the visuals are really nice as well. Who played Edward James Olmos' character in the film? Um, Castillo. It, it was the uh, what's his name? He was he was the jazz man in Collateral um, that gets taken out by Tom Cruise. Um, he's kind of like a small fat guy. 
Um, he was in Ali, Ali as well. A small fat guy. Um, who was, was he in? Who, who was he in Ali? Barry Barry. Uh, oh, can do Barry Shabazz. Barry Shabazz. Uh, something. Yeah, he's he, like a friend of Michael Mann's, and like uh, he played he played Elijah Muhammad's son in Ali Herbert. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Sorry, <laughs> I didn't really explain that well. But, um, anyways, yeah, he's he's a good actor. He's a really good actor too, um, and he does a really good job as as um, as Castillo. As Castillo, yeah. Did he have? I know he couldn't. He couldn't do it. That Edward James almost stare. No, that death stare. <laughs> that death stare, yeah, where he's like staring right at you and his eyes are going at you through the wall. Yeah. No, I don't think he could do that, but he was definitely like had that like cool, calm kind of, uh, you know, but sh strict kind of uh, lieutenant. Strict, taciturn. Yeah. Yeah. Character, yeah. That, so Like very economic with his words, like Marlo Stanfield. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like when he says something, he means it. But yeah. yeah. So, well, hey, man, thanks for doing this. This is awesome. Glad and to be uh, here. we'll have to do another one soon. Hopefully, maybe another Michael Mann uh, film in the, in the works. Our next one, that'll be 15, our quinceanera. <laughs> awesome, man. Take it easy. Are right, you too, bro? podcast is available on my YouTube channel, Rotunes Reviews. It's also available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other major podcast distributors as well. So if you don't mind, please leave me some feedback. I'd really appreciate that. If you'd like to connect with me on social media, I'm on Facebook, Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Rotunes Revs. I'm on Instagram, and I'm also on the Untapped app. My username is Brutuned. This is Andrew signing off. Cheers.